So we'd like to welcome you part three of our current event and weekly Bible study for February 17th, 2008. And we're going to pick up where we left off here. With uh, Now we're going to talk about Justin Martyr. And again, I'm not saying everything Justin Martyr ever wrote is false, okay? There's a lot of what he wrote is truth. But not everybody has everything right, okay? And remember, that's why the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and that maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. We don't ever want to put our trust in any man. You put it in the Word of God. You put it in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, with Justin Martyr, this book goes on, this is page 30, says, The total silence of the apostles, and of their immediate successors, with regard to the wood, or the cross, or the sign of the cross, contrasts well with the swelling words of the pretended of the pretended Barnabas and Nicodemus. Okay. Now again that brings up a good point here that there's a total silence by the apostles and their immediate successors regarding worshiping of the cross or the wood or the sign of the cross. Total silence about this. If it was something that should have been emphasized, why didn't Jesus Christ emphasize it? Why didn't Paul emphasize it in his writing? And I'm talking the worship of the cross. Making these things engrave an image form. There's nothing that's commanded in there. So Justin Martyr is of the earliest writers known after the apostles who speaks on the form of the cross, which he evidently takes with other um, crudities from the hand of Barnabas, as he says, quote, and this is really weird, but he says, uh, Justin Martyr, this is from Justin, Liberation of Faith, page 120, the Paschal Lamb roasted whole, was a symbol of the passion of the cross. For the lamb in the roasting bears a resemblance to the figure of the cross. One spit pierces it horizontally from the lower extremities to the head, and another across the back, which to hang the forelegs. You know, that, I'm sorry, but that is just wrong. You're telling me some roasted lamb? is symbolic of the cross and of Jesus Christ, the Paschal Lamb, like the Passover? Come on now. And he goes, and the, and the author goes on to say, Not the lamb, Justin, but the spits bear the resemblance. The scapegoat sent into the wilderness, according to Justin, typifies the Lord's coming in his kingdom. Thus he magnifies the image of the cross and debases the advent of the glory, according to the ideas of Barnabas. Or the supposed Barnabas, okay? And then, such as Barnabas and Justin, who put their own words in the mouth of the holy prophets, which we just talked about a couple of their quotes, and whose symbolism takes the literal facts of Scripture and makes them anything the more absurd, the more wonderful, to set forth the figure and the power of the sign of the cross. Far removed from simplicity, they are further still from faith from truth and from common sense. Together with Nicodemus, they form a trio among whom first sprang the form of the image and the power of the sign of the wood of the cross, which is lifted up in our day for a banner of universal power and glory within the churches. Neither of them, however, hints at the worship of the cross, a worship which in due time is sure to follow. See, when you start glorifying the cross in some way, shape, or form, or pointing to it, even though, you, even though initially you say, no, 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 you don't worship it. But when you start that process, you know that in due time, the sure thing that's going to follow is its worship. Because man always has this idolatrous streak in him. So if we go further now, we talk about Tertullian. Okay, now Tertullian has a lot of good stuff. Okay, no doubt about it. I would never deny that. Okay, but we're going to look at this, and, and I think that, I really believe he needs to give Tertullian and Justin Martyr a little more slack. I mean, granted, not about this writing, but about the good things that they said. He should at least include some of that as well. Okay, because it's not like they were some rank heretic or something like that. I remember, we all see through a glass, but darkly. Okay, so none of us have it all figured out. And this was in the infancy of the church as well. Tertullian of the same age of Menatus Felix, in his Apology for Christians, first repels the gross charges of the pagans against the Christians. 
for their secret and unnatural practices, such as the habits of cannibalism and the worshipping of the head of an ass, meaning a donkey. And then proceeds by saying, I come therefore to those who think they worship a cross also. Do they not do the same which they charge on us? Okay, so he's charging to the pagans. Do not you pagans do the same which you charge to us? The pagans are saying we worship a cross. When they consecrate their wooden images. Okay, and then he says a whole bunch more, and I can't get into every single thing he's saying. But then he says, so that all the differences between us, meaning between the Christians and the pagans, Tertullian's saying, so that all differences, difference between us consists, it would seem, in the great pomposity with which your image or banner is adorned beyond ours. So in other words, they got their crosses, we got ours. Okay? He says the difference is, is, is the great pomposity in which your image or the banners of your idols and these types of things are adorned beyond ours. I applaud you for this, that you do not consecrate crosses without all manner of adoring them. Now, see that? <laughs> go, go ahead. And Doug just brought up a good book. Doug's really studied Tertullian way, way, way more than I have. And, I mean, there's just not enough time in a day for all of us to own every subject. We just can't. There's no way. That's why I love having Doug here to sound things off on, because he's read a lot of these early church fathers and, and these types of things, and or, I should say fathers, but, you know, the early church people there. And um, he said Tertullian wrote with also a massive amount of sarcasm. So bear that in mind. That may be a lot of the crux of some of this. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this. Uh, but bear in mind, he was also very sarcastic. And he was absolutely totally against the Catholic Church as well. That's why this is a little bit baffling in regard to Tertullian. Okay? But if we go further, um, Tertullian like Menatus, now this is from page 34, Tertullian, like Menaeus, affects to deny the worship of the cross, while by justifying it to the heathen on their own principles and practices, he virtually admits it. Now again, that's not including the, his predisposition to sarcasm. Okay? Instead of indignantly, or even calmly denying the charge, he says that all the difference between us, Christians and pagans, consists, it would seem, in the great pomposity with which your image banners is adorned beyond ours. I applaud you for this. The language admits that the sign of the wood of the cross, or the likeness of the cross in wood, was worshipped in the beginning of the 3rd century, both by pagans and Christians, each in their own way. I will admit that's what it does kind of sound like, okay? But again, the sarcastity of Tertullian, we, we don't know. It's hard to say. See, this, one of the problems with writings is if somebody is looking at somebody, let's say that, that you were to send somebody a video image, and, and that person's looking at that person, and they're seeing the expressions on their face, and they're seeing the inflection in their voice. It's much... When you see that, it's very easy, typically, to interpret what they're trying to get across to you. If you're reading something, you have none of that. You have none of that. So, in all fairness, I want to at least mention that. Okay? Um, I kind of wish we had Tertullian here right now. We could ask him, but we can't. I can't I'm not going to do any necromancy here today. Maybe next week. No, just kidding. Sorry. Um, so, um, both by, uh, let's see here, um, each in their own way, and pleads that Christians were no worse for worshipping wood in honor of Christ than the heathens for worshipping wood in honor of the Jupiter or Ceres, which is where we get the word cereal from, believe it or not. Um, anyway, and we're not so good as the heathen at, at adorning their wood crosses. The heathen might reply that it was more sensible to worship wood in the divine form of man than in the odious form of a giblet of capital punishment, i.e. the cross or the staros, which is the very name which says Cicero was abhorrent to Roman eyes and ears and hearts. And where Tertullian now living... Where if he were now living, could he not applaud the heathen for their greater pomposity in adorning their wooden images, while multitudes of Christians reverence, love, and worship their crosses of gold and silver? Well, that's true. Multitudes of, of Christians do do that now. They, they worship their crosses of gold and silver, pearls and diamonds, and their other precious stones with heartfelt emotions. Thus, in after the centuries, Christians learned universally to worship the image of the wood of the cross. Okay? Now, again, I'm not going to lay all this at Tertullian's feet. I'm saying it was a gradual uh, procession 
that you knew the devil was going to do that. I mean, the devil's always trying to defile everything, every possible way he can. So, Christians after the centuries learned universally to worship the image of the wood of the cross, and not in the third century, during many persecutions in that century, multitudes were brought to the cross, or to the stake, or to wild beasts, or to the tormentors, for the faith in Christ. And they lay down their lives in martyrdom, of whom every individual might have saved himself from a terrible death, simply by bowing his head or offering incense to a wooden Jupiter or some other heathen deity. They could have got out of this stuff. They could have, you know, it meant so much to them. The martyrs, they weren't, I mean, they were going to die, they were going to go under the death. Period. They, you know. There's a Bible verse that says, the, same, the he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Now, you'd say, oh, well, then it's all about works. No, it's not about works. It's about the Holy Spirit living inside you, giving you the strength to endure to the end. If you're really a true Christian, all I'm saying here is, let's be reasonable. If you're really, really a true Christian, what point do you finally get to where you say, no, what, I, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to deny Christ? Well, why would you do that? The Holy Spirit living inside you can always give you the strength to do whatever. I don't care if it's burning at the stake. He can still give you that strength. There were some people that burned at the stake and didn't even feel it. God took the pain away. Not everybody. Some of it probably had to do with their faith, too. Did they have the faith to believe they couldn't feel the pain? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So, you know... They could have, there's a lot of these martyrs that could have got out of martyrdom had they just bowed down to Jupiter or Tammuz or whatever, kissed the Catholic cross, bowed down to the Pope's ring, whatever. Now in the primitive church, the want of images and, and temples, incense and altars for Christian worship was a constant reproach in the mouth of the heathen. Tertullian says, in another place, you charge us that we set up neither buildings, temples, like likenesses, nor altars of any god. Okay, so Tertullian says in another place, you charge us that we set up neither buildings, temples, likenesses, nor altars of any god. He does not repel this charge by an appeal to the Christian worship of the wood of the cross, but to the sign he attributes the highest importance. Saying, quote, this is Tertullian, that in all our movements, our travels, our goings out, our coming in, putting on our shoes, at the bath, at the table, in the lighting of our candles, in lying down, in sitting down, whatever employment occupies us, we mark our forehead with the sign of the cross. Now that is from page 165 of Liberation of Faith, Tertullian, Apologetics. Does that sound accurate? I mean, that's he's quoting right from his writings. We mark our forehead with the sign of the cross? See, that's, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. I'm not, like I said, I'm not throwing Tertullian out with the bathwater here. Okay? But, unfortunately... You know, that was said, evidently. Barnabas, Nicodemus, and Justin magnify the power of the sign, but give no hint of the worshipping of the cross, which worship Menatus and Tertullian agree to justify before the heathen. Well, now, you know, again, let's give them some, some grace here on this. Um, I don't want to put too many words in anyone's mouth. Thus the wonder grew with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, till at length all Christendom was enveloped in the delusion. Now, then we go to Cyprian. Cyprian, St. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, a martyr, honored in life, and in death lamented, was born of a centurial family in Carthage, about 200 A.D., and was beheaded A.D. 258, <clears throat> ten years after his conversion to Christ. He was an admirer of the works of his countryman, Tertullian, and followed him as Tertullian did justice and Barnabas. Now, again, I'm not going to say who Tertullian was following. I don't know that. You know? But, that's what he said. In the matter of Joshua's victory over Amalek, with this difference, they impute the victory to the power in the form, and they impute the victory of the power in the form and the sign of the cross. But Cyprian imputes it to the suffering of the sign of Christ. <clears throat> 
in the passion and in the sign of the cross, he says, is all virtue and power. Whoa. Cyprian is saying, quote, in the passion and in the sign of the cross, the sign of the cross, is all virtue and power? Oh, man. That's pagan, I'm sorry. In the sign of the cross is salvation to all who are marked in the foreheads. End of quote. Now we're getting into work salvation. The sign of cross in the forehead? Whoa! The sign and the mark were the initial of Christ. Now this is when they marked an X in the forehead, which was supposedly the monogram of Christ. Okay? The first Greek letter in his name, an X. Greek letter. Okay? And then they, they put the P in as well, which is supposedly called the monogram of Christ. Okay. The sign and the mark were the initial of Christ, as Cyprian explained it, for the custom of marking the baptized on the foreheads with, quote, the sign of Christ. Where is that in the Bible? I just must have missed that. The sign of Christ in the Bible. Aww. The sign of Christ, the X, is primitive, not with the murderous staros, not with the staros of agony and death, but the initial of Christ and of God, says Cyprian. So Cyprian's justifying they're not using... The the, uh, the the whole horrible, um, uh, really, Staros, or the cross, or let's say the Talmudic, the, not the Talmudic, but the, but the T of Tammuz, they're not using that, they're using the sign of Christ. So that makes it all better and good. <laughs> Does not. I mean, where is this commanded in the Bible anywhere? It's not. It's man-made. They're making this stuff up now. And whenever man gets into religion, he just ruins it. Whenever he starts to reinterpret the Bible, start to think he's Mr. Big Smarty Pants, figured everything out, well, you know, God revealed this to me. Well, if what he revealed to you is contradictory to the Bible, you know what? God didn't do it. The devil did, but God didn't do it. So again, Cyprian says, they only escape who are born and signed with the sign of Christ. This is like a Pentecostal saying, well, you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, or you're really not, you know, you're really not saved, probably. You're not filled with the Holy Spirit, how can you be saved? What is this? This is pride. Man-made religion. So Cyprian says they only escape. But in other words, the only ones that are, that, are, that are saved are the ones who are born again and, notice the word and, the sign, and signed with the sign of Christ. Which is the initial of the owner's name. The owner being Christ, which is the X on the forehead. The monogram of Christ. A cross, truly not of shame and of death, but of eternal life and glory. And this is dangerous stuff here. Where does it say this in the Bible anywhere? This is from his own writings. Okay? I'm quoting right from his own writings. Where does it say it in Cyprian's writing? Well, it's the the August AUG Mountain, maybe it stands for August, Track 50 on John 1155, quoted by Elliot Horn. Everything in here I'm reading to you is referenced. I'm not making this stuff up. Now, let's go further. Now let's get into the Roman Catholicism angle here, okay? Gregory Thaumaturgius, what a neat name. Anyway, Gregory Thaumaturgius, or the Wonder Worker. Oh, now we get into the Catholic saints. Up until this time, we've pretty much been talking about Christians. It says Cyprian was martyred ten years after he got converted. He got martyred. You know, if you were a, essentially a baby Christian... You might not have a time to figure all this out. You might not, but yet you may be elevated to a status that God never wanted you to be at. And here you are, you start writing, and you're not even really grounded in, the, in a lot of these doctrines or faith. And you start putting, setting forth things that you might have heard some, from somebody else or man's opinion or some other thing, and you start to come out with some heretical doctrine. It's very dangerous. So, the Gregory was the pupil of origin. Oh, good. Origin of Alexandria. That's who I want to be the pupil of. Of the Alexandrian mystery religions. Which is where we essentially get all the false Bible versions of today. Alexandria, Egypt. Gregory, Thaumaturgius, was the pupil of origin. 
and Bishop of New Caesarea. Now, this is the Catholic end of it now, okay? We're getting into the Catholic times. Basil, Jerome, Nazan, Nisan, Eusebius, and others magnify him and the wonders he wrought. These eminent bishops relate that by the word of his mouth, Gregory removed a mountain rock out of the roadway. By his prayer, changed a fish pond into a beautiful meadow. And with his hand struck down a rod for the bound of the rising flood of the river Lycus, thereby saving New Caesarea from being drowned in the waters, which rod at once became a great tree. Okay, whatever. Yeah, God's going to use the Catholic to do all this. Who's getting the glory? Catholic Church? Some man? I don't think so. Give me a break. Did you want to say something? So, his mode of converting the heathen was equally original and was deemed equally successful. Uh, let's talk about that in a second. But what this is, this is pre-Roman Catholic lies, essentially what we're going to be talking about right now. Okay? How do the Roman Catholics primarily deceive their sheeple people? How do they do it? Well, you got all the lying signs and wonders. you got Mary appearing here in this part of the world. you got the Lady of Medjugorje. You've got all these signs and wonders, the Eucharistic miracles, all these stinking Catholic... Uh, Pagan, so many of them are so gross. You got oil paintings of Mary where she's crying blood or some oil's coming out of her that stinks like terrible. And all these people are going up to the oil paint and getting it all over me. I mean, you see this all the time. On like TV and stuff. Supposedly apparitions taking place in some woods or something. And all these apparitions and all these signs and miracles never point to Jesus Christ. They always point to Mary or some of the Catholic Church or some... Some false and lying sign and wonder. Well, isn't that how the Antichrist is going to come? The Antichrist, the Bible is clear. He says when the Antichrist arises, he is going to come, and the primary way he is going to convert people and deceive people is through lying signs and wonders. So if you're into lying signs and wonders, just hold on to your hat. Get your popcorn bowl out, because you've got a whole bunch coming. But what did Jesus Christ say? Jesus Christ said, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. It's not something we need to be seeking. Why? Because if you're seeking after signs, you're not seeking after the Word of God. Signs and wonders are the primary and chief way the devil or Satan deceives. I'm not saying God can't do miracles. I'm not trying to put God in a box. But if those miracles occur, they better line up with the Bible. So, if we go further, the... Um, the official historian of the Roman Catholic Church, Cardinal Baronius, he says in his testimony, quote, that Gregory Thaumaturgus, the bishop of the great Armenia, first of all commanded that wooden crosses, which were set up by him to certain places, to be adored. That's where, that, that was one of the first things they ever did. Now this was the official historian of the Roman Catholic Church. Gregory Thaumaturgius, Bishop of the Great Armenia, they called him the Wonder Worker, he was the guy that supposedly did all these miracles. First, he was the first one that commanded the wooden crosses, which were set up by him in certain places to be adored and worshipped. Now, if he was of God, why was he setting up crosses, which were the instrument of Jesus Christ's death? Why would he set those up to be worshipped? That sounds a little strange and bizarre to me. Aren't we supposed to worship God and Him alone? And we're not supposed to make graven images? All, of all the bishops, the wonder worker is declared on the highest Roman authority to be the first to introduce the worship of wooden crosses by his own command. Gregory Neeson, a century later celebrating the memory of his great namesake, Gregory Thaumaturgius, the wonder worker, tells how he brought about that conversion of the heathen which followed. To save his life in a Dakinian persecution, this Bishop Gregory fled the country. After the persecution had spent itself, he returned home, and he instituted festal days commemorating the martyrs, and commanded the worship of the wooden crosses. Isn't that ironic? You've got, you got a Catholic here coming back, and he's commemorating festal days, or feast days, in regard to the martyrs. The same martyrs that the stinking Romans had killed. The Romans, prior to it being, even being called the Roman Catholic Church, had tried to wipe out all the Christians. And now you have the very same, at the very same infancy of the Roman Catholic Church, they're celebrating the death of the martyrs. 
And he commanded feastal days to be... Well, the Bible forbids that too. You know? Set up these special days commemorating the martyrs and commanded the worship of the wooden crosses. Where does it say to do this in the Bible? It doesn't. It's man-made religion. And I'm taking you all the way back to the 1300s and the 200s and the, to see where this all started. Now, this Neeson goes on to say, instead of the Feast of Pan, Pan, the horn god Pan, you know, where we get the word pandemic, pandemonium, horn god with hooves, he's the one that's always associated with rock and roll, Pan, the god of, of uh, essentially sex and debauchery, yeah, that Pan. He said, instead of the Feast of Pan, of Jupiter and of Bacchus, Solomon, um, Solomites with a feast are performed in honor of Peter, Paul, Thomas, Sergus, and other holy martyrs. This is what the Roman Catholic Church did from the beginning. All they did is they took the pagan feasts, where they were celebrating things like Pan and Jupiter and these false gods, and they just substituted it with the names of Peter, Paul, Thomas, Sergus, and other holy martyrs. <laughs> the very ones the Roman Catholic Church had killed. Or the Romans had killed, I should say. Isn't that a little ironic? Oh, well, we... We didn't really kill them. We we just... You're just giving us a bad rap. We'll, let's, we'll just sweep that under the rug. See, back then it was easy to sweep stuff under the rug. Why? Because we didn't have a newspaper coming to our door every day. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have books being published. They hadn't even invented the printing press yet. It was really easy to cover stuff up. It only took one generation. And a lot of times what they would do is they would kill the witnesses to a certain event. People were afraid to talk. It was a different time. So what was done in heathen superstition, the same having been sanctified for the worship of the true, of the true God, might be done in the service of the true religion. So in other words, in other words, what he's trying to say here is what had been done in the name of heathen superstition was now done in the name of holy, the holy God. God will not have it. The Bible says, learn not the way of the heathen. Period. Okay? A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. 1 Corinthians 5. Leaven is always a type of sin. This is sin. You let this permeate, you let this come in a little bit, you give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. What about have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them? That's what we're doing today. We're reproving them. We're shedding light on the unfruitful works of darkness. This is darkness we're talking about. What about fleeing all appearance of evil? Well, wouldn't it be setting up crosses and kind of amalgamating things that the pagans had and kind of putting, you know, keeping the pagan stuff but just putting different names on it? Isn't that not fleeing all appearance of evil? What about making no provision for the flesh? These pagan ceremonies are sure making provision for the flesh. Just some Bible verses to think about as we kind of weave our way through this. So... This language allows the removal of the image of Jupiter, which would be a false god, Jupiter, that once stood in the ancient capital to a high place in St. Peter's of Rome. See, that's all the Catholics ever did. They just repackaged it. Equally with the conversion of the Mexicans from worshipping the symbol of their rain god in the form of a cross to the worship of the same image for salvation. So now they just substitute the rain god for Jesus Christ. In the form of a cross. They already had the crosses. <laughs> when they got there, hey, this is great. We already got the crosses all set up. Well, devil's good at what he does. So Balaam and Astaroth and Milcom and the rest, lying vanities of the heathen, those are all false gods, and the rest of the lying vanities of the heathen, having been once consecrated by a sacred rite, might be dedicated to Paul or Apollos or Cephas or even to Christ. What an abomination. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye not partakers of her plagues. Okay, that's why the Bible says that. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what communion hath Christ with Belial, which is the devil. Well, this is what you're doing here. You're having communion with Christ and Belial. And righteousness with unrighteousness. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and you will, I will be a father unto you, and you will be my children. That's Second Corinthians six, verse fourteen through eighteen. But I, I picked verses out of there. 
So, we're not supposed to have anything to do with this stuff. I mean, come on. This is so obvious here. So, if we go further, um, let's see here. And these things are to be worshipped with a high contempt of the devil in the very way he delights to be worshipped. With honor to the saints and glory to him. Well, here, let me start over. So Balaam and Asheroth and Milcom and the rest of the lying vanities of the heathen, having been once consecrated by a sacred rite, might be dedicated now to either Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or even to Christ. And worshipped with a high contempt of the devil in the very way he delights to be worshipped. So we're supposed to do this with supposedly high contempt for the devil. But the very, but the very fact is, is he's de- the devil's delighting in what you're doing. You, okay, oh I go to the cross with a high contempt for the devil. I'm doing it for God. But you know the devil's there loving it. Loving every bit of it. Yeah, go down and bow yourself down to that cross. Go do it. Because the devil loves it. He, he loves it. With honor to the saints and glory to him who says, Thou shalt have no other gods but me for me. See, Jesus Christ said that. But yet, you're bowing yourself down to the accursed wood that, that was the method of his death torture. Why would you do this? Thus it came to pass by the 5th and the 6th centuries that pagan temples, by sprinkling with holy water, where's that in the Bible? Holy water. I love it when I watch, the, you know, if you ever watch any of those shows where they do the exorcists, here, drink this holy water. Or they spray it on the... Or they, they, they put it all over the person. And then, and then the person who's possessed is acting like, ah, yeah, you know, I can't stand the holy water. You know what? The devil's putting on a show for them. <laughs> Where's holy water in the Bible? And you're telling me anything that comes out of the Catholic Church could be truly holy? Please. These, these uh, supposedly now, the, the Catholics are coming out, the Pope's saying he's, he's arming a mass team of exorcists. Catholic exorcists. To go out and purge out devils from people. Give me a break. You know, the Bible says if a kingdom divided is if, if a kingdom is divided against itself, how can it stand? Well, what do you mean by that? I mean that that religion is straight from the pit of hell. The Pope, all his pedophile priests, all these guys, straight from the pit of hell. Got nothing to do with God. And you're telling me somebody who's demon possessed in the Catholic Church can cast out other devils. The devil would love you to believe that all day long. Sprinkling holy water, putting the crosses in front of him and all this other stuff. Give me a break. When did Jesus Christ have to tie somebody down in a chair and, and do some eight hour prayer re- resuscitation of some whatever uh, rogue prayer they're praying and use holy water and crosses? When did Jesus Christ have to do that? He basically said, come out. And the demons came out. He didn't have to do all that. That's all for show. Devil puts on a good show if you let him. So, we go further. Uh, Thus it came to pass in the 5th and the 6th centuries that pagan temples, by the sprinkling with holy water, were converted into places of Christian worship. That's what happened. The pagan temples were converted into places of Christian worship. They took their idols, and basically a lot of, a lot of times they kept the idols. They just changed the names. Why? Because it would appeal to the pagans and the Christians. Pseudo-Christians. They were made receptacles for the fragments of the cross. Remember how I said Helena found the cross? Well, supposedly, what she did is they, they split the cross all up and they sent it to all these different parts of the world as a relic. And the relics of the martyrs. And more readily to gain the attendance of the people at the house of worship. It's all about the numbers and the money. Even back then, eminent bishops suffered the old idols and the altars to remain. What does that word mean? Suffered means to permit in the Old English. So, and remember, this book is from 1831, I'm reading. So, eminent bishops suffered, which means permitted, the old idols and the altars to remain. Oh, nothing like being true to the faith. You know, earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, you know, Jude. No, nothing like it. And then it says, under the name of the patron saint, though, this time. Or the Virgin, Virgin Mary, Goddess Virgin Mary, or the Apostles, and to receive the honors supposed to be due their images and their likenesses. You know, the Catholic religion has a lot of gall. They go and they kill Jesus Christ. Well, I'm 
the Romans, okay? I'm not saying G- the Jews didn't do. That's a whole other study. But they go and they kill the apostles and so many other martyrs, and then they turn around and they start worshiping them. You talk about hypocrites. Man. Now, the invention of the wood of the cross. The high festival in the Roman and Greek churches owes its origin to the fabled discovery of the wood. By Helena, the mother of Constantine. This is the guy that started the Catholic religion in 318 AD. Okay? But Helena, his mother, supposedly discovered... We, we touched on this earlier. I'm just going to read this a little more in depth. The story is told with important variations, but with a good degree of harmony in the following particulars. Helena, at an advanced age of 78, Constantine's mom, made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in 326 okay, AD, seeking for the holy places of which all traces were then lost. A resident Jew helped her to find them. A temple of Venus, or Ashtaroth, then stood over the holy sepulchre. Here they dug in 327 AD, and they found three crosses of the Lord, and three crosses, one of the Lord Jesus Christ and the two thieves. Give me a break. They've been buried in the ground over 300 years, and they're still just fresh as ever. Not only that, by Roman, by Jewish law, they were commanded to burn the wood after they were used in crucifixions. As we said before. And they found them in a, in a perfect state of perfection. <laughs> oh man, these Catholics are something else. It's like they, they believe anything is told them. Though buried in the ground, not quite three centuries, to determine which of the three was the one sought. Recourse had... To, recourse was had to miracles. Two of the three wrought no miracles. In other words, they were like, what they were doing is they had, they lined up the three crosses and they were like, bringing people to the crosses and they were like, if somebody had a problem they were like laying them on the cross or doing something. Two of the three couldn't heal anybody, but the one healed everybody, they said. <sighs> to determine which of the three was the one sought, recourse had to be made for miracles. Two of the three wrought no miracle, but the, but the touch of the third healed the sick. And restore the dead to life. Oh, so they're bringing people back to life. We'll just pull them out of the grave and place them on the cross and come right back to life. This established, this established the reputation of the true wood. You understand how it got, ended up getting worshipped now? Because, see, if you can turn the accursed tree into something that's not accursed, if you can, the Bible says, woe unto them that call good evil and evil good. The staros... Remember, cursed be the man that hangeth on a tree. It defiles the land if you leave him there even overnight, according to the Bible. It was the instrument of our Lord and Savior's torture and death. And now they're saying something that's that's a curse is a good thing. It's healing everybody. Whatever. Helena adored the wood. Sent one half to her son, the Emperor Constantine. Now this was probably in 327 AD. Gave the other half to the Bishop of Jerusalem and died then the following year. Many are the versions, but these are the features common to every known form of the fable. Remember, this is more of a fable than anything else. Never omitting the crosses of the two thieves. By the Jewish law, the wood on which one was hanged was burned to ashes as an accursed thing. If these three crosses escaped the fire, they could have not have reasonably escaped the corruption buried over 300 years. But no, they were in a perfect state of preservation. Constantine lived 10 years after this boasted discovery, but left behind neither mark nor mention to show he ever even heard of any of these crosses. So again, we have all kind of conflicting things even about this. I mean, if anybody would have a, uh, uh, you know, you would think a penchant for this, you'd think Constantine would want to. You know, hey, we got the big miracle machine over here. Come down and get healed. You know, dig your dig your loved ones up. Bring them down. We'll heal them. We'll bring them back to life for you. Give them a break. So Constantine lived ten years after this boasted discovery. Uh, Eusebius then, for twelve years after, Bishop of Caesarea, and quick as he was to catch at marvels and and near to the scene, he takes not the least notice of this discovery. Maximus at the time of the Bishop of Jerusalem, and for 20 years after, never even mentions it. Cyril succeeded him in the Episcopate in AD 350, and is the first person known to recognize the existence of the wood of our Lord Staros, in that, of course it's not the Lord Jesus Christ's cross, but 
He was the first person after Helena that even acknowledges this. And this is 25 years later. All of a sudden he has this big revelation. Yes, it's real. And all these other people never even mentioned it. Hmm, sounds kind of funny to me. Um, so then, Helena and now Cyril have sainted names for the part attributed to them in finding and distributing it. Because that's what the Catholic religion is all about. Let's get all the relics, let's get all these things, and we want to chop them up and get them out. We, we, we want to take people like Paul, we want to chop up their bodies, and we want to send their you know little toes to this church and their, and their big toe to that church. That's what they do! They have dead body parts in their churches of supposed saints. Is that morbid? We're not even supposed to touch a dead body. I mean, from, from a... If you go into the Old Testament Levitical things, dead bodies aren't something you want to be hanging around and touching and... Oh no, but they bring them in. Oh yeah, it's no big deal. As a result of them doing this, Helena and Cyril have now been sainted by the Catholic Church because of their part in distributing this line, sign, and wonder supposed miracle. The invention of the form of... Bi- Barnabas and the wood by Helena, absurd as they are, have been abundantly productive of evil to the faith, the faith of Jesus Christ, and to the hope and the destinies of Christendom. Since the latter half of the 4th century, the deceitful image is rising upon the steeples, meaning the cross on the steeples of all the churches, and is resting upon the pulpits, like I said, about every pulpit you go to has a cross on it, is glorifying the windows, you know, they put it in the stained glass in the windows, and on the walls, and on the sacred books of the churches. Think about stuff that you might have crosses all over. Not not in one, but in many denominations. This is true. It is exhibited in the shop of windows, in private houses, on the robes and purses of an increasing number, in all the American cities and villages, under an impression that it is, that it is a lawful banner for us, as it was for Constantine. And that we have as much right to it as the Roman Catholics which is no right at all, but a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Ah, this is part of the strong delusion that they should believe a lie? Hmm, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Remember, God said He is going to be the one that sends the strong delusion that they will all believe a lie. Why? That they might all be damned who receive not, what? The love of the truth. That's how important truth is. What did Jesus say? He said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's how we get free. If you're in bondage, you get free by knowing the truth. What is the truth? The word of God. Read it. It'll set you free. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a man. Not my teachings. The word of God is what sets you free through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we go further, let's talk about St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who we already mentioned here. Um, Cyril was an ordained presbyter and catechist in Jerusalem in, he was a Catholic, in A.D. 345. He delivered his justly celebrated catechal lectures, meaning the Catholic, in 347 to 348, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built, furnished, and adorned by the commandment of Constantine himself, but not finished until after his death in 337. Now, Without counting on his orthodoxy or honesty, which is very, very much in question of the Cyril guy, our concern now is with his distributing of the supposed wood of this cross that Helena found. Now, he was banished three times by the Romans for being such a lowlife. He lied on, on all these different occasions. They kept banishing him. <laughs> I'm not even going to read you all that because I don't have time. But this is the type of person, he, he was a total liar, this guy. Okay, remember, there had been no mention of this supposed cross for 25 years after Helena died, and all of a sudden he says, oh yes, I found it. Nobody else even mentioned it. If, if this was really the case, don't you think they would have been coming out of the woodwork saying, oh man, everybody's getting healed, this and that? No, no, no. None of that. So all of a sudden, this liar, who'd been banished from the Roman kingdom three times, um, he all of a sudden says he's, he's, he's got the cross and he's distributing the wood which he did with great success, never by one word imitating how or when or by whom the staros was even found, meaning the cross was found. Remember, staros is the Greek word for in the King James Bible for cross. Nor how any part of it came into his possession. He couldn't provide that answer. Without a miracle, if Helena had found the staros, Cyril must have known that for a fact. 
and holy to neglect giving her credit for it was almost as bad as to sell the consecrated vessels given by her son to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. He wouldn't even give Helena the credit. You know, you know what he did? He went out one day, probably chopped down a tree and said, hey, you know what? I remember this thing Helena said. I'm going to resurrect this thing. And he started splintering the stinking tree up into, into uh, splinters and he started sending it around all these things and saying it was part of the cross of Christ. Give me a break. Now, I quote one of Cyril's own works on the subject from the Oxford Library of the Fathers. Anyone desiring to investigate this context can easily do it by referencing to the page on Cyril's Catechismal Lectures for every quotation that we're going to talk about right now. And then it goes on to say, now this is Cyril, Though I should deny it, the crucifixion, this Golgotha confutes me. Golgotha is the place of the skull where Jesus Christ was crucified. Okay, Near which we are now assembled. The wood of the cross confutes me. Confounds me is what he's trying to say. Confutes me. Which has form, hence, been distributed piecemeal to all the world. So he says he's taken this wood of the cross that Christ was crucified on and, and, and uh, distributed it to all the world. Let us not be ashamed of the cross of Christ, but although another hide it, do thou seal it on thy brow? Remember this thing they were doing? The sign of the cross? Do not thou seal it on thy brow? That, that the devil, beholding that princely sign, may flee far away. Oh, give me a break. Yes, just like in all the movies, oh, make the sign of the cross. You know, that makes the devil flee away. Give me a break. It's inviting him in. But make thou this sign, when thou eatest and drinkest, sitteth and liest down, riseth up and speakest and wakest, in a word on every occasion. That's what he said. Make the sign all the time. Makes you feel real religious. You know, broke cream religion, little dabble do ya? This princely sign was the sign of God. The initial Christ, not the ignominious sign of the accursed tree. So he says... It was the X, the same handed down to this day in all the customs of the Latin clergy. Now, if the Catholics are doing it, do we want to be doing it? I don't think so. Who crossed themselves on all occasions, the Latin clergy, not with the sign of the, quote, murderous wood, which would be the sign of Tammuz, the T, but with the princely sign of the King of Glory. Oh, give me a break, okay? Give me a break. Remember, the Godhead is not like unto gold and silver and graven images and these types of things. It's not like that. Cyril eloquently enumerates among the many witnesses for Christ his virgin mother, Egypt, the Baptist, and others to which he adds, the holy wood of the cross in his witness, which is seen among us to this day and by means of those who have taken in faith thereof, has from this place now almost filled the whole world. In other words, he's saying the cross that he sent out to all the world has basically filled the whole world. And that's news to me. By Cyril's deceivableness of unrighteousness, many in all subsequent ages have been deluded that they should believe the lie. Every deed of Christ, this is another quote from him, Cyril, every deed of Christ is a boast of the Catholic Church. And her boast, meaning the Catholic Church, of boasts is the cross. That's a pretty big statement. Cyril, this Catholic, heretic, liar, who said that he distributed the cross to the whole world, the original cross of Christ, says that every deed of Christ is a boast of the Catholic Church. Give me a break, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Then he says, but her boast, her boast of boasts is the cross. Man, I'll tell you what, this is some serious heresy. And then he goes on to say, The glory of the cross has led into light those who were blind. Though ignorance has loosed all those who who were held fast by sin and has ransomed the whole world of men. Who's getting the glory here? The Catholic Church and this relic. The cross. the, The accursed tree. Now, it says, but the glory of the cross has led into light those who were blind. No, 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 no. Here's what that statement should say. The glory of the cro- it should be the glory of what Jesus Christ did on this earth through his death, burial, and resurrection has led into light those who were blind. But no, no, it's the glory of the cross. Oh, man. 
God's not happy with this. I'll tell you that right now. This is an abomination. And then it says, uh, the holder of this self-propagating wood profanes the name of Christ in, in trumpeting its fame. That's true. And then here's another quote from Cyril. It has ransomed the whole world, this cross. No, no, Jesus Christ. His, he paid our sin debt. He paid our ransom. Okay? The wood didn't do it. And then it says, the wood receives the glory and Cyril the price. The wood in the Catholic Church receives the glory and Cyril the price. Why? Because he's taking this wood and he's selling it. He's selling the wood. He was the, he was the start of the prosperity preachers. Ben Hinn would have been proud of this guy. Hey man, they're doing the same thing today. They're sending out their little vial of holy anointing oil or like the other day I got my little purple prayer cloth in the mail. Doing the same thing today. Love of money is the root of all evil. They were no different. This is pure idolatry. Pure idolatry. Now, see how it's progressed. We started and now it's gotten really flagrant here with these writings. You know, it says it has ransomed the whole world. This cross. But the Bible says Jesus Christ paid the ransom for our sin, not for our sin debt, not the word of the cross. It's just, it's just a fallacy. So now if we go to page 58 of this teaching. Okay, this is Constantine's account of when he saw this cross for the first time. And when the sun had little past midday, Constantine said he saw with his own eyes the sign of the cross, the staros, displayed in a splendid light, outshining the sun in the heavens, and upon it an inscription plainly written, By this conquer. Okay? Now what he saw was an actual... When he looked into the sun, now he was a sun god worshiper, Constantine, he looked into the sun, man, that must have hurt, and he saw an X in the sun. An X. And by this sign conquer. Now, number one, what would Jesus Christ have anything to do with Constantine? He's fighting an ungodly, unholy war for his pagan sun god. Who was showing him that? Was it Jesus Christ or was it the pagan sun god? It was the pagan sun god. It was a lying sign and wonder. The pagan sun god showed him an X in the sun. What did that X represent? The Christ. Who was their Christ they served? Tammuz, Mithra. The sun god. That's what it was. It wasn't Jesus Christ. And why would Jesus Christ tell him to go and conquer? I just don't remember Jesus Christ doing that in, in the New Testament. Yes, thou shalt go forth and slaughter thy enemies. I see it in the Old Testament, but I sure don't see it in the New. Remember what Jesus Christ said, Bless those that persecute you and do good unto whom, them that despitefully use you. You know? But no, he's saying, no, we go and we kill by this sign. That's another reason I know it's not of Jesus Christ. Okay? Great, then it said, regarding Constantine, great astonishment seized him. And his whole army which accompanied him was a spectator to this prodigy. He asserted that he was yet in doubt why this display was made to him. And he thought much of it until night. Then in his sleep, the Christ of God, give me a break, appeared to him with the sign shown above him in the heaven and commanded him to use it as a standard of the patterns seen in the heaven for protection in joining battle with the enemy. We know this is not from God. Remember, the Bible says that the angel can transform, or the, that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. And it's no marvelous if his ministers can be transformed into ministers of righteousness that appear as righteous. This was the devil disguising as God. If he, I, who knows if he even had this? It's pretty hard to verify this. You know, this is a personal thing he had. And again, this would have been an absolute first. Jesus Christ never would have commanded anything. It would have been contrary to the word of God. He wouldn't have contradicted his own word. Now, this is the beginning of the cross being incorporated into the Catholic worship, which ultimately permeated the Protestant religion. So a pagan has a vision of a cross and is told by, and is told by this conquer. Oh, that's what I'm going to go by. 
Yeah, that's, you know, where do I sign up? From this, we as true Christians, are we as true Christians to view this as an endorsement by God? No, it's the exact opposite. So, then let's go further. Rising early the next morning, he, Constantine, told the vision to his friends. He called for workmen in gold and precious stones and ordered them to make an image like it. Which image I have seen with my own eyes. Now, this guy that's writing this is, um... Oh, he's some Catholic, uh theologian guy that was this was personally relayed to him. This is um, this, this is all referenced. Everything I'm reading you here is from actually the Catholic archives. Okay, so it doesn't have a bias on it. Okay, it has a Catholic bias. Okay, so for uh, let's see here. For the emperor condescended, God graciously granting this himself to show it me. And it was this form. A spear, rather long and erect, was covered all over with gold, having a transverse yard in the form of a cross. So it was a spear that they decorated with gold and all his precious jewels, and then they had a, they had a uh, cross, horizontal crossbar on it. On top of the spear was a crown of precious stones woven round with fine gold. Upon this were the salutary marks of the name of the Savior, expressed by only two letters. The first two letters of the, of the Greek name, Christ which is the letter P in Greek, in the middle of the figure, and X curiously inserted, which plainly signifies the whole name of Christ. PX, um, as they're saying, is the monogram of Christ. Okay. But the problem is, is the Christ there in reference to is the Christ of the sun god. Tammuz. Mithras. These types of deities. Many, many names. Different ways they package them. It's not Jesus Christ of the Bible. Nobody's going to convince me of that. This has nothing to do with God or Jesus Christ. This is an abomination. So, from that point on, the emperor always wore this symbol in his, in his um, helmet. And what it looked like was an X with a P. He wore the emblem in his helmet and all, the, all his warriors did the same. Ungodly. Pagan warriors wearing this, and you're telling me this is from Jesus Christ. Come on. Lactinius, the tutor of Constantine's heir, says that Constantine was warned to sleep, warned in sleep, to put the mark and the sign of the cross upon the shields of his soldiers so as to give in battle. He took care to do this and ordered the letter X, named in the monogram, to be drawn on all the shields. This shows unerringly the character of the vision, the dream, and the sign seen of Constantine in heaven, and marked on his helmet and the shields of his shoulder, soldiers. It was an X, supposedly for Christ, but not the Tammuz Tau cross. At least at this point it wasn't. And here we have a whole bunch of actual pictures of actual, like, these are the copies of the medals and the coins by Constantine. And sure enough, this symbol was on all the stuff. This is this one they're showing is the banner of Constantine consists of a monogram of, they said, of Christ, encircled in a wreath of gold. Okay, the monogram of Christ, an X with this big P. And then below is a coin made from the imperial mint as the first is as the first is of a metal. The face of the coin shows the emperor's bust. Um, on the reverse of the banner, holding the monogram, posted by the two warriors, one on each side, and it says it has this monogram. Uh, now, below is the medal showing the face of the bust of Constantine Augustus, with the monogram figured in the helmet on his head. It shows that little thing on his helmet. Then they show a medal of Emperor Jovan, which has the same monogram. And then the coins and medals of Constantine now show the monogram on his helmet and on his shield and on his person. So he was obsessed with this monogram. Okay? Totally. But remember, the Godhead is not like unto gold and silver, engraven images and art, made with hands by man. I like that. Okay, in summary, the scripture sense of the word staros... For the cross of Christ is a concrete pail, a strong stake, a wooden post, and in the abstract it is voluntary and impatient suffering of shame, of reproach, and torment unto death, in whatever form it may please God to lay upon us, whether by the rack, wild beasts, the fire, or the hatred, and the persecution of godless men, for the sake of truth and righteousness and an everlasting hope of life. Now, that just said a lot here. In the scriptures, what he's saying is the cross that Jesus Christ was crucified on was most likely some type of um, 
wooden stake, wooden post, these type of thing. And again, I, I'm not going to... To me, that's pretty much irrelevant in this argument. What we're trying to find and ascertain is, is it's right to worship the cross. Okay? But actually what it means in its truest sense is a voluntary and patient suffering of shame, reproach, and torment unto death. Isn't this what the apostles wrote about a lot? Isn't this what Jesus Christ wrote about? He was despised of all men. He had no place to even lay his head. These types of things. Everybody forsook him at the very end. The scriptures never speak of the staros or the cross as an image or a sign, but always as a reality of the Christian burden. Remember all those verses about persecution we, we mentioned earlier? And a cognizable to the senses, in every case known by the sorrows and the anguish of the sufferer. Oh, this isn't fun to preach on. Oh, no, now you're really not tickling the ears. Well, I'm sorry. It's true. Jesus said, He that taketh not his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. But again, that's the Christian burden. It's not some real wooden cross you drag around with you. Like some people literally do. The staros, or the cross, of personal shame and suffering for the truth and the righteousness of God. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Oh, we're talking about the wood. No, we're talking about what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. How he paid your sin debt through his death, burial, and resurrection. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is what he paid on the cross for you. For you're saved by grace, the grace of God, through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, like the Catholics think you'd work your way to heaven. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Why? Because God's not going to share his glory with nobody. He saves you on his terms, his way. Period. You don't get to, you don't get to share in the glory for that. Most people just can't accept that. They've got to think that, well, I'm good enough to get into heaven. No, you're not. The wages of sin is death. He paid that sin debt. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's how you get saved. It's a free gift. You either freely receive it, you freely reject it. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ paid the price. He paid the sin debt. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The very thought of foolishness is sin. That's all it takes. One foolish thought. You're a sinner. You're born into sin. Okay? So, this is, when we, when we talk about this, it's very, very important to de define what the cross is actually representative of in the Bible. They see no sense, there's, there's those that see no sense in suffering wrong and in, in, in injury patiently, lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. That's most Christians. They don't want to suffer. They want to sit in Smiley Joe Olstein's church or Benny Hinn's and get their ears tickled. They're going to be the first ones lining up to probably receive the mark of the beast. They're going to think we're, we're, in, the, we're in the millennial kingdom or something. Or they're going to fall into grand delusion when the, when the rapture doesn't happen and take everybody out of here and give everybody a jail, get out of jail free card pass. They're going to fall away. Why? Because they put them, their, their faith in some false doctrine? Not the, not the word of God? Some man? I'm warning you. I'm just warning you. So what's coming. The Bible said it's going to happen. Strong delusion that they will believe a lie, that they might all be damned to receive not the love of the truth. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly that in the latter times, which is where we're living now, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and having their conscience seared with a hot iron. That's where we're at. Evil men and seducers shall wax, that word wax means to grow, they shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 So, if we go further, it says, Lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ, 
and reproach for believing and suffering in the crucified Savior. Far be it that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. See, you're crucified with Christ, according to Galatians 2.20. That's what we should be. Crucified. Meaning, living a crucified life. We're not dead, yet Christ liveth within us. We are dead, yet Christ liveth within us. Okay? This is what we're talking about here. But not, this is not, not, not in reference to the actual wood of the cross but the self-sacrifice and the offering of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ on the wood of the accursed tree. He was made a curse for us, that we should not bear the curse. You, do you see the distinction now? In every sense, the scripture of the cross, first, is a pale or a wooden stake. Okay, This is what, from, a, from a, um, the standpoint where it says Jesus was crucified on a cross. Okay, Yeah, but, when we talk about these other verses where you know we, we bear the reproach of the cross and, and glory in the cross, this is symbolic of the shame and the reproach and the patient suffering of innocence before the world for righteousness' sake. Joseph bore this form of the cross while imprisoned by the captain of Pharaoh's guard till the Lord delivered him. And so Ignatius, being condemned in the Antioch to be torn and devoured by the wild beasts for the faith of Christ. Does that sound right? bore his cross from Antioch to Rome, where in the amphitheater he suffered it, despising the agony and the shame. What about all the martyrs? What about Jesus? I mean, you know, we're to follow Jesus Christ. He was the first example. In every scriptural sense, the cross of Christ is a living reality, and never that lying vanity, which is a senseless image in the sign of the wood. And I will end there. We got through the whole thing. Praise the Lord. I'll go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, Lord God in heaven. I just pray, Lord God, that your truth would go forth. I pray, Lord God, that I would get out of your way and that the Holy Spirit would speak not only through myself, Lord God, but any God-called Christian in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord God, that your fear would be upon us and that that fear would drive us to repentance, that it would drive the unsaved to repentance, Lord God. I do pray, God, that you would save their souls. For it's your will that not one would perish but that all would come to repentance. And that every devil or demon or fallen angel that would try to hinder your word from going forth would be bound and rebuked, and if it be thy will, cast into the abyss. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you forgive us for any and all sins we've committed in any way, shape, or form, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask all these things. Amen.